know the why human trafficking work is needed to fight for the freedom of modern day slaves. But love, passion, commitment isn't all you need to be an effective and successful anti-trafficking advocate. Learn the how. I'm Dr. Celia Williamson, Director of the Human Trafficking and Social Justice Institute at the University of Toledo. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation podcast, where I'll provide you with the latest and best methods, policy, and practice discussed by experienced experts in the field so that you can cut through the noise, save time, and be about the work of saving lives. Welcome to the Emancipation Nation, episode 140. This is Dr. Celia Williamson, and today I have Dr. Stephanie Powell. She's retired from the Los Angeles Police Department as a sergeant in charge of the vice unit. So Dr. Stephanie's unique insights into the world of sexual exploitation and trafficking gained over her 30 years experience in LAPD has really made her the choice to lead Journey Out 2013, and that's formally called the Mary Magdalene Project. But Journey Out assisted victims of human trafficking in finding their way out of violence, abuse, and trauma due to sexual exploitation or forced prostitution. 2020, Dr. Stephanie joined the National Center on Sexual Exploitation as the director of law enforcement training and survivor services. She also has spoken before the California Congressional Legislative Committee at the state capitol. She's addressed the Texas Legislative Black Caucus in Austin. Her expertise is really also on the subject of race and law enforcement. She was highlighted in a PBS documentary, And Still I Rise, by Dr. Henry Louis Gates. She's also been authored in, uh, she authored a workbook actually for teens. Um, She also has been in textbooks. I mean, topics such as teaching beautiful, brilliant black girls, girls trafficking misunderstood, understanding the commercial sexual exploitation of African-American girls. These are the areas of her expertise. So I'm so excited to welcome you, Dr. Stephanie, to talk about some important topics. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Yeah, so we were just chatting offline about, you know, just us being so busy and stressed out, and but still you are focused and committed to this issue of sexual exploitation. So tell us what you do at the National Center now. So at the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, what I do is I am the director of law enforcement training. So I go across the nation here and I'm teaching law enforcement how to have a victim-centered approach when it comes to um, speaking with victims of human trafficking um, and when they're investigating these cases. You know, just um, having that victim-centered approach because victims of human trafficking are so complicated and um, they're really, uh, uh, in terms of their victimology, I mean, there's there's just so many things, right? They're mm-hmm. poly-victimization. And, and so just being able to navigate that and then being able to catch the bad guy. You know, that is that is that is victimizing them. So I do that. And then in terms of the um, survivor services connection and um, uh, we call it in cozy mm-hmm. and in cozy, we have a law center. And so in our law center, we uh, focus on 
victims of sexual exploitation, human trafficking, um, and, and online exploitation. So for instance, we are suing Pornhub. So I walk alongside those clients because as you know, if you've ever been involved in a lawsuit, oh my God, that could be stressful in and of itself. So can you imagine having the additional stress of being a victim of either human trafficking or sexual exploitation? So it's my job to walk alongside them in that process. So that's what I do. And so do you help them get prepared for trial or help them deal with their stress? Or what do you mean walking alongside them? So because we are trauma-informed, right, that's why I use the terminology of walking alongside them in terms of what their needs may be. So if they were to need me to sit in court, I would do that. If they need um, a, a place to live or they, whatever their needs may be, I follow that lead and I try to give them those, match those resources with them. And I'm also a sounding board for them if they just need to, to talk. That's awesome. So let's go way back, uh, you know, to establish how you got here today. So how did you get on the LAPD? Why did you want to be on the LAPD? And how'd you end up in the vice unit? And how'd you like it? The reason why I'm laughing, because we're going to have to go way back because you know, I'm 165 <laughs> years old. But um, but you look 30. <laughs> I love you. So um, and I'll pay you later. But, you know, um, so what happened with me? It's kind of interesting. I was a school teacher for L.A. Unified School District uh, before I became a cop. And um, LAPD was hiring because they were under a consent decree because they needed to hire more minorities and women. Because, see, back then, um, it had only been since 1979, believe it or not, that women were allowed to work in patrol cars. Mm -hmm. And the reason why there was the lawsuit, because you could not promote past a certain rank unless you work patrol. So hence came the lawsuit. So as a result of that, there was this heavy push of, of females. And, um, and my father said you should join the Los Angeles Police Department. Now I'm from South Central LA. Mm -hmm. I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, it's not like they were kinder, gentler, you know, like, mm, I don't think so, dad. And he's like, no, you, you, you should do it. And, and he said, you know, because you're already educated, so you'll probably be able to move up. But this is what he said, I'll tell you. And this is what made me change my mind about it. He said, the termite, is a very small insect that could take a building down from within. Oh, wow. The termite. And so I was like, okay, so I could join this and still be helpful to my community. Because I've always had that, that sense and that, that piece about me of always wanting to help and always wanting to give back. And so I saw law enforcement as my way of giving back. And that is how I navigated my uh, law enforcement um, career, and then also lending my voice mm -hmm. in uh, lending my African American voice in that space, and having the respect of those that I worked around to listen. So it's amazing. Some things that you do, you could do so much behind closed doors that folks never know about, but it doesn't matter because liking to see the end result that's going to help the community. So that's how I got on. Fast forward toward the end of my career, 
um, I became the sergeant in charge of a vice unit. And here again, it's where my father's words really were able to spring into action because when I when I start when I got into this position, I was able to choose the officers to work by vice unit. So of course that you know it was a very di- diverse group and the way you the only way you could get into my vice unit was that you had to really have a community centered approach. Mm-hmm. You know you had you had to. And so and that's what we did and we loved the guys and the, the, the ladies that worked with me. We loved what we did. And the loving what we did was not the loving of arresting people in prostitution. That wasn't the loving what we did. In fact, that was probably the downside of it. The upside was to be able to arrest those that were causing harm. The upside was to be able to stop that one more liquor store in the neighborhood that didn't need to be there, right? The the good part was being able to close, either close down some of the strip clubs that didn't need to inundate the the neighborhood or to make sure that they were in compliance. Mm -hmm. So that was the upside of the job. And people wanted to get in my unit because, you know, of all the work that we were doing. So that's how I got into it. I didn't really understand the whole thing of human trafficking at first because I left LAPD in 2013. Um, but when I realized what it was and talking to those that we were arresting, because back then we were even arresting juveniles, like the youngest I arrested was 12, mm-hmm. which, you know, I know you're, the the uh, audience is going like, ooh, yuck, yuck feeling. That's kind of how I felt, but it was the law. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why she got arrested because unfortunately, there was nobody to pick her up at the station. So the arrest just really meant that she went had to go to a juvenile facility. Unfortunately, thank God things have changed since then. So I just want, there's no police department that should be arresting juveniles now. But we're talking back in the day because I'm 165. <laughs> but um, but um, what I started to realize, honestly, in talking to the people that I was was arresting, that it was an issue that could not be arrested away that services were needed. So what I did, even before it became popular, was that I coupled with an organization in LA who I later became the executive director of, who would have known. And so if if um, if if it was, it was a misdemeanor, so if it was times when I didn't have to make the arrest, then I would turn them over to that, to that nonprofit. So I know it's a long story. I didn't know how to make it any shorter, but I thought that it just really gives the audience not only a clear aspect of who I am, but the paradigm shift in law enforcement as it pertains to human trafficking. I think I think that's amazing because I can see almost feel the struggle in your life. It joining the LAPD and being from South Central and knowing the history of some of the abuses and the bad relationships between the police and the community there. And yet, and still choosing, which many pioneers did, to combat the problem from inside the system, which is very courageous. And then working in a system where even you are thinking, well, wait a minute, this doesn't seem like we should be doing this, but this is the law. So, okay. Um, 
but being uncomfortable about that until you can get to a, a position where you're actually running the organization that uh, supports uh, the survivors. And I mean, tell me about that turmoil that was going on inside you during these years, because Ooh. I think a lot of people experience that right now. You know what? I think what people don't really realize, and I actually did my dissertation on this. And, and, and as I was doing my inner, my uh, dissertation, I realized what was going on with me and what was going on with me was emotional dissidence. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and then the consequences of emotional dissidence. And so when I started to interview African-American female officers, you know, um, in, in California and in Florida, they were experiencing the same thing, regardless of how much time they had on the job or, or, or their rank and what they experienced. And, 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 in in the dissertation was basically on emotional dissidence when their um, cultural identity is threatened. Right. So I'll give you an example. You're sitting in roll call or you're sitting in, in the station and they say, Oh, you know, we're going to be doing a class on, um, on uh, uh, what word am I looking for? Um, we're doing a class on not stopping people um, because of their ethnicity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and so, and then the follow-up is, you know, we don't do that. Like, oh wow, and you're sitting there going like, really? Yeah, we do. <laughs> and so you're sitting there going like, and you're the only one in the room that looks like you. And you're thinking, okay, do I say something? Do I not say something? What do I do? And so there's there's this internal conflict that happens where you feel a loyalty to your race and your people coupled with your job. Hey, before we continue the episode, I want to let you know of three courses I offer. Effective Case Management with Human Trafficking Survivors, the TNT Survivor Journey Groups, and the Best Life Human Trafficking Prevention course for girls that are at risk. Raising awareness around human trafficking is a great start. Hanging up flyers, having fundraisers, doing human trafficking presentations, or even joining an anti-trafficking coalition or commission or student group. But it simply isn't enough. If you or your group aren't touching the lives of survivors or those at risk in meaningful and healing ways, you're missing a critical component you to get back to the reasons you joined the anti-trafficking fight in the first place. The reason you joined that coalition or that commission or that student group. You wanted to make a difference, but maybe you didn't know exactly what to do and so presentations seemed doable. Why? Because you had the knowledge and skills to do it. Well, if you're really ready to get directly involved and help change the lives of others for the better, then this is an important message for you. I have almost 30 years experience working with survivors and studying the issue. And I'm circling back to help you become effective and confident in your ability to work with survivors of commercial sexual violence. I wrote a few books, developed some courses that would love to train you on how to be involved directly. Just go to my website, CeliaWilliamson.com and check out my webinars. Learn a little more about how you can become knowledgeable and skilled to actually work with survivors using my trauma-informed courses. And now, 
on with the podcast. So that becomes an internal struggle. Um, and I would have that struggle sometimes a lot. Um, whether it be, this doesn't feel good arresting a 12-year-old, but it's expected of me because I'm, I'm the police. Um, or things that are dealing with, with racial issues. One thing I did find out is that if within the police department is that if you make your stand of and you draw your line, people are not going to do things in front of you. So I can, you know what I mean? Like, so I can never say they would not dare call someone the N word in front of me. Mm-hmm. They just, that just would, that just wouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. That, they just, cause they just know that that would not be allowed on my part. That's, that's a, a, a line drawer right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the bottom line is it's kind of an internal conflict. And the thing that people don't realize is that when you see things like George Floyd, when the officers, especially the African-American officers that now have to go out there in riot gear, understanding that what happened to George Floyd was wrong, what happened to Rodney King was wrong. Now you got to go into the community in blue. Knowing that you feel the same anger that the people are that throwing rocks at you, but those people hate you even more because they see you as part of the system and they see you complicit in it, but not knowing how you're not, not knowing how you may be having these conversations in the station expressing how you felt about that or how you may be alienated because that's how you feel. See, people don't realize that. And it's a real struggle for some officers. I can't speak for all, but for a lot of officers of color. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to, you know, you don't want to leave either because remember the termite. Mm-hmm. You got to be a voice at the table. You've got to promote so that now you can make a difference. Because as a sergeant, if I see somebody sitting on the curb that might be of color and it doesn't make sense to me, see, I can stop and ask those officers as a sergeant, why are they on the curb? And if it doesn't make sense, I can say, get them up and put them back in the car. If they come to me with an arrest report that doesn't make sense, I can say, there's no probable cause here. You're going to have to let them go. And I'm telling you the things that I've done. But if I'm a citizen, all I can do is get mad and keep going. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the officers of color has to stay, even though you have those internal conflicts, because they, they, are, they are absolutely there. And I think that's the thing that people don't, don't always understand. And it also translates into human trafficking, and we could get into that um, later. But I just want the viewers to really understand that, that African-American officer that's standing online in that ride gear with his helmet and his baton is probably feeling the same way as some of the protesters are, but he's got to protest in a, he or she has to protest in a different way. And a lot of them are doing the work from within the the public just doesn't know about it. I think that's what happens a lot to pioneers. Pioneers are often misunderstood. They're misrepresented yet they play a critical role. I mean, if you just look at the entertainment industry, if we looked at those old movies from the 30s, the 40s, and the 50s, we would we feel somewhat ashamed 
at how people of color had to portray themselves in the movies, not realizing that if those early pioneers did not bust into that industry in a way that they had to bust into that industry and make the friends and build relationships and open doors, we wouldn't be here today knowing what we know about people of color who are now portrayed very differently. But there are people like that that have to go through those conflicts. I have my same stories of universities and what professors look like or supposed to look like, and they certainly don't look like me. And so, and those things that happen politically in universities that benefit and support uh, people who are not like me and how I am asked to go along with this whole system um, that blocks and creates barriers sometimes for women and other people of color. It, it's a it's a courageous um, and thankless uh, job sometimes for people, but we have to do it. We have to do it. The reason why I'm laughing because I'm an adjunct professor, <laughs> and oh my god, I get it, it, it's the same thing. You know. You'll introduce yourself as, and I only do this in, in professional settings. You know, I'll introduce myself as as Dr. Paula, whatever, and then they will invariably call me by my first name, but my counterpart, they'll call them Dr. So and So. So I, I, I understand. Mm-hmm. That's why I was laughing when when you <laughs> yeah. said this. I just had an incident last week, so I I so understand what you're saying. That's right. Many many microaggressions that. Too many to account, but they happen, but we have to stand on that wall. So tell us a little bit, explain also as a woman, seeing women who are being victimized and working with them over the years, talk to us about that. You know what I, what I learned in, um, and I'm so, I really am blessed to be able to see this through different lenses, not based on what I've read, but what I've actually have done in terms of law enforcement, victim advocacy, and just having the pleasure of walking alongside these survivors has really um, impacted my life so much. But what I really started to understand, but at the same time horrified at the number of African-American women that are survivors of human sex trafficking. I some I've seen some stats at 48%, some at 50% of victims of human trafficking nationwide are African American women. And that has been so lost in the narrative sometimes that even when I was the executive director at Journey Out, I made sure when I was on a panel that I pointed that fact out because and what I also noticed and keep in mind I took that job in 2013 so it hasn't been that long. When I would look up PowerPoints or I would put in victims of human trafficking, I never saw any any women of color. And so I immediately knew that that had to um, to change. And so, you know, walking alongside them and just seeing their strength and their resilience was such it, it was a learning curve for me. But at the same time, it was an honor that they opened up their lives and allowed me in. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that, that makes sense or not. That makes total sense. And I can even, I can even understand the dissidence of seeing who you were interacting with 
either on the street as a police officer or in the nonprofit organization, seeing what the faces look like and the experiences of people and then going online, Googling human trafficking and seeing something totally opposite. Um, Yeah, yeah, that's got to be mind boggling. I mean, it is to me all the time. I call it, you know, uh, all kinds of things. But one of the things I call it is privilege. And because we know disproportionately, this issue affects people of color, you know, the LBGT community, people with disabilities, uh, people who are foreign born and people in poverty. And we act as though anybody can be trafficked. And more importantly, when you look at the pictures of who who they've taken pictures of and put on posters, you think, wow, that's okay. I could see that potentially happening, but that's not the common experience. It's like a parallel universe, right? Yeah. It's like being in a, in a parallel universe. And, and then, you and as you were listing, right, as you were just giving that list, I was thinking about all of those, those groups that you just named, are really on the fringes of our society, so to speak, right? Yeah. A lot of times, the only reason why, and, and you know, we already we know all the risk factors, but when you talk about things like poverty, the inability to get a job, the 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 being a a, a woman, right, and and only seeing your value in terms of how you look, in terms of low self esteem, all those factors feed into why one gets involved in um, or is easily led into human trafficking because we're talking to the victims right now mm-hmm. that or the LGBT community, and especially when you talk about trans people who are unable to get jobs because they're trans, right? And so, and you got to survive. Mm-hmm. And it just opens them up to so many vulnerabilities. So sometimes it's our system that creates these vulner- vulnerabilities. Yes. Because when I work with victims of, of human trafficking or those that become renegades, so those that were trafficked, but now they're out of the life, but they don't have any other way to support themselves. Now they go into prostitution. When you talk to them, they will say, the reason why I'm doing, what else am I going to do? Because nobody's hiring me because I have my pimp's name tattooed on my forehead, mm-hmm. like over my eyebrow, literally. And I will say, and in our in our intake, when I was at Journey Out, we asked, where do you see yourself in five years? None of them said, I see myself selling my body. They said, I see myself being a school teacher, or there's so many things and so many dreams that they have, but there are barriers that are in their way that are caused by our system that doesn't embrace them inclusively. And that's why this group that I'm talking about stays in prostitution. That's so true. And that's some of the things that we don't consider. We're just worried about rescue. We just rescue and we don't think about the restore part, you know, all the barriers that we've created to the restoration. So when you're training law enforcement across the U.S., what types of things do you emphasize to them? So I start my classes with them taking the ACE test, Adverse Childhood Experience. And the reason why I do that, and I don't ask them their scores, 
But the reason why I do that is because I think the only way that you can really help others or have empathy is to really understand yourself. And so if we say that victims of human trafficking have high A scores, and now you as an officer just took that test and you have an I, a high A score, what you begin to understand is that you have more in common with these, with these people than what you think. And it's only by the grace of God that that's not you, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I start the class, I start my classes with that, um, of them understanding themselves and the aha looks that I get, because I don't ask them their scores, but I could tell that some of them have high scores. And so, and then now, and then I'll go into victims of human trafficking and their high A scores and their way of, of, of coping with those things. And, but I also talk about resiliency because I think that's, that's important too. So I, I kind of coined my whole workshop, the person behind the booking number. I want them to understand that who this person is, because when you understand who this person is, and you understand that you have more in common than you have differences, then it is going to drive your behavior toward that person. Mm-hmm. If you understand that when, you know, and, and because there's, you know, some places they're still arresting um, um, people in prostitution. I'm talking about adults. If when you understand that, yeah, she may not be real here. She may not be happy to see you. And um because they've been up for the last 24 hours, especially if they have a pimp, you understand that. You understand that the reason why she is not giving you information about her pimp is because she's afraid and you can't protect her after she gets out of the police station. So so I, I think for them to understand the victimology is important. I think for them to understand the resources that are out there that will help them help their victim. And what I have found, and and so I married LAPD with with Journey Out. And so they're to this point, they could, when they do their stings, their prostitution stings, Mm -hmm. um, there's somebody at the station offering programs right then and there. And so if they go into the program, then that arrest is not made. And there is not even a record of the detention. Mm -hmm. Right. And they don't even have to say I'm a victim of human trafficking in order to get this. Mm -hmm. They don't have to say that. Back in the day, it used to be you'd have to say you were a victim of of human trafficking to keep from being arrested. Now it's like, do you you need any help? Mm -hmm. You know, what do you need? So it's it's um, I, I love seeing this this paradigm shift of where I came from of what it was like, but understanding, you know, it's, it's so refreshing to have an officer call and say, Hey, we just picked up this girl and she needs to get back to Ohio. Not picked her up and we've given her a booking number, but we just picked her up, you know, because the vice is doing what they do and mm-hmm. them helping her get back to Ohio and to see how the officers feel really good about themselves that they were able to facilitate that because now they understand who she is. Yes. I love, I love the whole approach because if you just look at straight um, police community relations training and uh, training uh, police officers to build relationships with the black community and look at the research, they say training. Yeah. Doesn't really, it's not really where it's at. But what you're doing is 
following the research says engagement is where it's at. So when you go in and you start out by saying, let's see who you are and let me tell you who they are. And there's a connection there. There's an engagement there. And then following it up with ways that they can feel good about doing the right things. I mean, I could imagine that people are, you know, uh, grab, grabbing on to what you have to give them. And I mean, have you had any feedback based on your trainings? And has any uh, police officers reached out to you and, and let you know any success stories or anything like that? Oh, my God. You know, I did the same thing with the fire department. And invariably, when they realized that they, their children um, who they just sent off to college could be victims of human trafficking, I can't tell you. They'll come up to me and go like, oh, my God, I'm break. I called my wife. I told her the training that we're getting. And we called. I'm calling little Susie tonight that we just sent off to college. Mm-hmm. Or they'll come up to me and say, oh, my God, I missed all the signs that, that I've missed. Um And so there's a genuine concern because before all they would see is this person walking down the street on the phone with hardly anything on as though they are enjoying their life. Mm -hmm. And so when they see who that person is, it's like the light bulb goes on. I get it. Or my God, that could have been me. My mother was an alcoholic. I grew up in the hood. I, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. Like you could see them getting it and they'll come up to me and say, I get it. I get it. I get it. Like, and and that is so refreshing. I think because I am seen as one of them, it, it's, it, it translates easier than someone who comes in from a nonprofit who may be accusatory or seen as the bleeding heart. The other thing, the other thing that I teach them about is the study that was done on community trauma. Mm-hmm. I teach adverse community trauma. So I, I, I talk about that study because that study is amazing in and of itself that individuals, how, indiv- how individual lives can be shortened or how they are affected just being in a community of violence. Mm. And and how you, I, in fact, I wrote a, a paper on this. Um, I wrote an article on this in, in Police Chief Magazine after George Floyd, because I was talking about how vice units can really be a part of community relations by really um, affecting the quality of life within a community. And that's what builds trust. So you, if you understand the dynamics and the trauma of the community and you are there to help their quality of life, you're seen in a different light. And I'll just give you a quick example. So as a vice sergeant, I would get um, alcohol beverage control. You know how if a, if a establishment is going to sell alcohol mm-hmm. hearings, well, as a, I would talk about all the reasons why, you know, I need to sell singles mm-hmm. because there's already a liquor store on the other two corners that are doing that. So I would come in and talk about the crime rate. I would talk about the need of not selling singles. And I'm, I kid you not. 
there was some um, 7-Eleven. I got a 7-Eleven to open up dry with no with no alcohol. So I was preventing some of these locations from getting a um, alcohol and beverage license. See, now you're coming in as the police advocating for the community, right? Now, if something happens in that community with an overuse of force by law enforcement, now when you go before that community, they're going to remember you and at the very least listen to what you have to say as a department than if you go in there cold, never meeting anybody, never doing anything for them. They haven't seen you till it becomes a problem with one of the officers. So those are the things that, that I teach in my classes. I, I love the approach. I think it's, it's long overdue. And I'm jealous that you are um, from California. You're in D.C. now? No, I, I'm in California. I work out of D.C., So, but my home base is here in L.A. Okay, well, we wish you were in Ohio. Thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie Powell. I, I enjoyed spending time with you. I hope people got a lot of value out of what you talked about, and I hope they're a little bit more empathetic and insightful uh, of those pioneers who have to stand in that crevice uh, between, you know, what's right and what's wrong and, and work from inside out. It's not always uh, prudent to work from outside in or to pick and protest. Sometimes you need your allies on the inside doing their work as well, very quietly. Uh, they don't get pats on the back, but they're there and they're doing the hard work. And thank you so much, Dr. Stephanie, for doing the hard work because we need you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me and, 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 having the ability to have this discussion so because it's a discussion that's needed, that's not often had. And I just want to encourage the audience that when you see that officer of color, it means so much when someone comes up to you that looks like you and say, I'm so glad you're, the, you're, you're here. Thank you. That was Dr. Stephanie Powell talking about something that we don't talk much about but many of us experience it's it's the in between it's those spaces and places in life where we stand in the crevice and we try to create a bridge right it's like as a female officer arresting other women that she knows have been victims they're being victimized arresting young people back in the day and that internal conflict that that need to be internally loyal to other women to to have people of color be officers at a time when we know that people of color particularly black people indigenous people are suffering at the hands of the abuse of the police, to stand in that crevice, right? To try to be loyal to your profession, but also to your people. People who work from inside out, they go into these systems. So we don't think about them. We think about the protesters on the outside, and, and and give them the honor and the glory. But we don't think about the people on the inside working quietly, working diligently. They're pioneers. 
In some respects, they go behind enemy lines and they work on our behalf. And some of us are pioneers right now today. Some of us may not be in the criminal justice system that we're talking about today, certainly in the social service system. We have seen what our system can do and has done to people, detrimentally to people, stigmatizing people, preventing people from recovering, from receiving what they should receive if we were truly and genuinely and authentically interested in helping them. We've seen it. And some of us work within it. And we we experience some emotional dissonance where we know our system is hurting people and we know we we're a part of that system. But our hearts are in the place of helping people in that system. We know that happens in the healthcare system, right? I live in a city right now, Toledo, Ohio, that the birth outcomes of Black mothers in my community is on par with Botswana, a third world country. The birth outcomes of Black women in my community, despite the fact that we have three multi-million dollar hospital systems, are on par with a third world country, statistically true. We know that if we asked anybody in that healthcare system, is there racism here? Is there, is there prejudice going on? Every single person would say, no, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced. Yet the system all put together, all of our drops of water that creates the ocean is creating something that is causing poor birth outcomes in the healthcare system. And not just that, you know, for people of color, it's birth till death, more chronic diseases. We look at the school system. We all support the school system. And we know our school system produces failing results in poor communities every single year. It's been happening since I was a kid and it's still happening. And some of us are a part of that system. Oh, it's a time of transition where some of us are pioneers. We go inside the system to work in it and we try to change the system from inside out. And I think we need to recognize ourselves for that. Dr. Stephanie Powell wrote about it. She assessed it. She did a study about it. I invite you to read her work. Because in her work, you might find where you are experiencing some some emotional dissonance, where you have some internal turmoil and some loyalty, and you want the system to work the way the system says it's supposed to work. Oh, we have hard work we are doing. Thank you so much to Dr. Stephanie for just discussing it. And, and bringing it into the forefront and reminding us of the hard work that we're doing, of the pioneers that are out there, and that it's not just people outside these systems protesting and picketing and telling us what's wrong. There are quiet and diligent termites inside these systems, breaking down those walls and breaking down those barriers. 
Until next time, that fight continues. Let's not just do something, let's do the best thing. If you like this episode of Emancipation Nation, please subscribe and I'll send you the weekly podcast. Until then, the fight continues.